I'm Attorney General Lawrence Wasden. I'd like to welcome you to Counsel for the State, a podcast produced by my office. Counsel for the State will shed light on my office, explain what we do, and discuss timely legal topics. Our aim is to increase transparency so constituents, journalists, and everyone with an interest in Idaho government can better understand how the Attorney General serves the state. With that, here is the Office of Attorney General Public Information Officer and Counsel for the State host, Scott Graff. Welcome to Counsel for the State. This is Episode 6, and today we return to the realm of consumer protection to discuss two data breaches that have affected Idahoans. First, a reminder that the podcast is available online on the AG's website. That is AG. .idaho.gov, G-O-V. I say that in case you're listening and wanting to share the podcast, perhaps with someone who is not downloading podcasts regularly on their iPhone. Uh, Anyone can listen free online simply by visiting the AG's website. Just look for the big blue button towards the bottom of the page that says podcast. Also, Counsel for the State is available through typical podcast outlets like iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play Music. Now, in today's episode, we'll discuss recent news of a settlement with Equifax following the largest data breach ever in the U.S. We'll also discuss another financial-related breach that we learned about just a few days ago. Now, to do so, we welcome Jane Hochberg. Jane is a Deputy Attorney General in the office's Consumer Protection Division. Jane, welcome to Council for the State. Thank you, Scott. And we welcome back Brian Kane. Brian is Assistant Chief Deputy in the office and a regular here on Council for the State. Brian, thanks for being here again. Thank you, Scott. All right, Jane, let's start with you and with Equifax. Last week, State Attorneys General announced a $600 million settlement with the company. This all goes back to an incident in 2017. What happened two years ago? In September 2017, Equifax announced that it had a massive data breach that affected approximately 147 million consumers, which included approximately 677,000 Idahoans. The breached information included social security numbers, names, dates of birth, addresses. For some people, it included driver's license numbers, credit card numbers, and um, dispute documents related to credit reports. The information was accessible to outside people from May 13th, 2017 to July 30th, 2017. So this is that's kind of an important point, right? This is one of those breaches where uh, it wasn't just that the data was breached, but it was available for, um, what was it? 76 days. 76 days. Yep. That's correct. So that seems, sounds like something else was going on there. Did, did Equifax not know about it? Was, I mean, what happened there, Jane? Equifax received notification that it had a vulnerability in March 2017, but failed to patch the vulnerability through its network prior to this um, breach in May. So this really kind of subjected folks to a little bit more exposure than an ordinary your data has been breached. We figured it out. We closed up the system. Right. It was it was not just a blip on a radar overnight when there was some changeover in system or something. This lasted for two and a half months. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so this happened. This was in uh, 2017. We, of course, just announced the settlements within the last week or so. That settlement is a result of the state AGs almost immediately launching an investigation. Before we talk about some of the specifics aimed at consumers who were affected 
give us an idea, Jane, of why in, in our office of the Idaho Attorney General, the Consumer Protection Division gets involved in something like this. Right. When a company represents that somebody's data is safe and protected and subject to certain security procedures, it must actually do that. You can't misrepresent the services you provide. So by misrepresenting these services, um, you violated the Consumer Protection Act, and that's why we were involved. Okay, and our office is in charge of enforcing the Consumer Protection Act, correct? That's correct. We can't say too much here, but just to the average Idahoan, you know, who may be sort of paying attention now because they were involved to the Equifax situation, but this is a regular occurrence where, where state AG's offices team up with one another and sort of collaborate to, to, to see a settlement like this through to the end. Can you give us an idea of, of how that process plays out? Right. Well, on a variety of matters, not just data breaches, um, the states work together as a group to gather information related to nationwide conduct, misconduct, or violations of Consumer Protection Acts in different states. And we review the information together. We work on um, interviewing witnesses and gathering whatever information we need. And we work with the company at issue to try to resolve the matter on a nationwide basis. And there's typically an office or several offices that sort of serve as lead, right? I believe Pennsylvania was the, the lead state on this particular settlement. Uh, well, that, that's correct. There's always a group of states that take the lead. You can't really have 50 different offices um, doing everything. So what we do is we try to conserve resources and do this as most efficiently as possible by having certain states designated leads on matter, and they take the lead on the investigation and the negotiations. So in this case, uh, with Equifax, the investigation led to a very large settlement. Uh, when we issued the press announcement early last week, we mentioned that in addition to the consumer restitution, which we will be uh, dedicating quite a bit of time here on the podcast today uh, towards, there's also money for the state. And in this case, it's about a million dollars for the state of Idaho. Other states um, will be getting more or less based on what, the number of victims? How is that figure determined? When we have multi-state settlements, the states work together to decide how the money should be divided up in the appropriate manner. And so it depends on the, on the particular settlement. Um, we look at population. We look at um, the amount of work a particular state put into the matter. So states that are a lead state will get more because they've expended their office's resources in a way that okay. a different state may not have. Um, we also looked at um, the number of um, consumers affected by this conduct, too. So a state like California or Texas, Florida, New York, they get substantially more than the state of Idaho simply because our population is so much smaller. And in this case, we had so many fewer victims. That's correct. Okay. Um, what happens to that money that the state gets? The state's money uh, relates to costs and fees expended by our office in investigating this matter. So what happens pursuant to Idaho law is the money goes into the Consumer Protection Fund, and that money is then subject to legislative appropriation. And Brian, sometimes when we announce these multi-state settlements and we say, you know, the state received X amount of money uh, and it has to go into the consumer protection, as Jane said, that's pursuant to state law, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's a, that's a policy set by? The Idaho legislature. Okay. Um, and part of it is that, you know, under the separation of powers, um, within Idaho, we can't bring money in and just spend it without legislative authorization. And so what this does is it makes sure it goes through the complete process and the legislature gets to say, this is how much money uh, we have and how we, the legislature, think the state should spend it. 
So there's no commission, Jane. You're not working on commission and getting. No, unfortunately, no. <laughs> this would have been a big commission on this one. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times, you know, there, there's a there's a separate consumer restitution settlement, or there's a different way for consumers to pursue restitution. This one was a little bit different, where the settlement included some payments for the states, but also consumer restitution in the same. Can you? Talk about why this one was that way and others, it's just we announced that there's a payment for the state, but there's other ways that consumers uh, can pursue their redress. Right. In a lot of cases, we can't necessarily trace the injury back to particular consumers. So the money comes back to the state and benefits all the taxpayers, in a sense. Um, in this case, we know who the affected consumers were. Uh, well, Equifax knows. Right. Um, so we can try to... Um, get those particular consumers reimbursed for their actual expenses and make sure that they have the credit monitoring and things like that. I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you remember a particular issue or settlement where it was not so easy to pin down a specific number of consumers and therefore there wasn't a specific consumer redress part of the settlement like this one? Sure. For a lot of our pharmaceutical cases that relate to misrepresentation of the safety or efficacy of a product, we can't go back and determine every person in Idaho that may have received that particular prescription and then reimburse that person. It's just not feasible. I don't even know if it would be possible to do that with people on Medicaid and on private insurance and paying cash and things like that. So in situations like that, the funds go back to the general fund okay. through but the it, Consumer Protection Fund. And part of that is in this in this instance, you know, Equifax knows the data that was released. And so it's fairly easy to say based on this data, um, we know who those folks are. And um, as we, if you want to transition now to kind of the, the did, your, did your information get disclosed piece, you know, there's a process where you can go online and check to see if your data is part of the breach. And you seem like you know exactly what you're talking about. So, uh, you know, one of the <laughs> one of the things that that occurred in this process is I thought I should probably check to see if my information was part of this, and uh, and it was. Uh, and so I went through. I, I put in uh, the last six digits of my social security number and my last name. Um, my information was part of it. Uh, which then immediately takes you to the file a claim uh, process. And, and this one is a, a little bit uh, different than some of the other ones because uh, if you file a claim, you're entitled to 10 years of credit monitoring, or if you've already got credit monitoring in place, uh, you could be eligible for a $125 payment. Uh, and then you're also eligible for whatever uh, time you spent trying to protect your identity uh, through this. Um, and so if you've already engaged in like credit monitoring or you had to report uh, cards lost or compromised, I mean, and get new uh, debit cards or credit cards or whatever it is, um, you can recover that time. Um, and it's $25 per hour up to 20 hours. Um, and all of that, if you want to know how to do all of that, uh, you can get there either through the Attorney General's website, you can click a link within our press release, uh, you can go to the FTC website and right on the front page of the FTC uh, website is a link for Equifax uh, issues um, and that will take you kind of right through that process. So uh, one of the things that you just mentioned there, Brian, was the time that folks spent on freezing their credit or signing up for a credit monitoring service, which I told Jane before we turned on the recorder, uh, I was also included in this uh, breach, uh, luckily enough, and uh, it was the first time I took the step of actually 
freezing my credit. Can you, for folks who are maybe just being introduced to the idea of credit monitoring versus credit freezing, Jane, talk a little bit about the difference between those two. Sure. Credit monitoring is what it sounds like. It's monitoring. It'll send you an alert if they think there's a, a fraudulent um, transaction where credit freezing was actually freezes it in place. It's, it's a security freeze. It restricts access to your credit report, which makes it difficult for identity thieves and other people to open new accounts in your name. It also uh, makes it difficult for creditors that you want to see um, and want to work with um, access to your credit report. So that, that, that's the potential downside. But this is, is it safe to say this is the most aggressive step that a person can take in protecting their credit is putting a freeze on it. So even, even the good guys, you know, when you, when you walk in and you want to you know, buy a car at the, the dealership and they have to check your credit before the loan goes through, um, they can't even do it at that point. You would have to take steps to unfreeze it. But is it the most aggressive way? Safest? Yeah, I, th I think it is the most aggressive way. Um, once your account is frozen, like you said, if you go to buy a car, you'd have to unfreeze your credit in order for um, the car dealership to look at your credit report. So that it is a little bit more um, potentially um, time-consuming um, than just leaving your credit out there, but it also makes sure that your credit is, is frozen, that nobody can open a card in your name bigger picture there's sort of a a moment i think where as a consumer you know that you just kind of get you throw your arms up in the air and you go what am i to do as a consumer in 2019 um knowing that my information is probably out there is it just safe to say that at this point in time if you shop online if you use a credit card or a debit card when you swipe it there in the store that there's a very good chance that somebody has your information Yes, un unfortunately, that's true. Um, there are steps you should take, though, to protect your identity and to pr protect your credit. Um, there are some things that, that are pretty simple. Make sure you always read your credit card statement every month. Don't just pay it. Look at every single line item. Um, check the numbers. Make sure you're only paying for what you think you should pay. If there's a problem, call your credit card number if you see a, an issue or a charge that's not yours. Um, also, know your payment due dates. I mean, the, the, the bills come out approximately the same time every month. If you don't see one for a few months there's, and you know you charged on that credit card, there, there's a problem. That bill's going to somebody else. Um, do the same thing with your uh, health insurance reports, the um, explanation of benefits, the EOB forms you get in the mail. Make sure you take a look at those. Make sure somebody else isn't racking up bills using your health insurance. Um, that's a common thing that happens, too. Uh, also, an important thing is check your credit report. There's a way to check your credit reports for free. Every year you can check with the three major companies. Um, make sure that you go to the correct website. Well, there's more than one website, but the FTC recommends that you go to annualcreditreport.com. Some of the other websites that say they're free, they'll try to g encourage you to sign up for credit monitoring and things like that. But if you go to annualcreditreport.com, you can get all three credit reports every year. And just so you know, the, the FTC website is ftc.gov. G-O-V. Yep. G-O-V. Yeah. Uh, so, Jane, I get my free credit report. What are the things that I should be looking at when I, I print that out? Definitely look for things that are unfamiliar. If you see a credit card company name that you know you don't have that credit card company, it, it's time to contact the credit reporting agency and that card to let them know that that was taken out fraudulently. So, and I think that's something that, that has taken me a while to kind of wrap my 
head around as a consumer is, you know, that knowing my information is out there is one thing, but not necessarily fully understanding how the bad guys might try and use it. In that situation, somebody probably would have gotten a hold of your credit card, I'm sorry, your social security number and been able to sign up for a credit card, obviously fraudulently. What other ways do people who have had their information compromised uh, become victimized? Besides credit card companies? Besides, yeah, signing up. Others signing up for credit cards that they never signed up. Sure, um, you can get health insurance in that person's name. You can file for a tax return, um, a tax refund in that person's name. Um, You can apply to get a job in somebody else's name. So a tax refund, which means, you know, come come April, if I'm going to get a refund and it never shows up, that could be a sign that somebody has intercepted it, essentially. Exactly. Become me and had it sent to another bank account or something like that. Yep, tax, tax identity theft is a big problem. Yep. Yeah, or you could wind up with an investigation from the IRS because multiple returns have been filed for the same uh, Social Security number with the IRS, which is also, I mean, that's a big red flag. Yep, that's correct. I got a call a few years ago. It was a credit card company saying, hey, are you in London buying wigs? <laughs> and of course, I was not. <laughs> not this month. And they say, well, somebody's trying to use your, I think it was a Capital or Chase credit card to uh, to buy wigs in London. We'll go ahead and cancel the transaction, cancel the credit card. We'll overnight you another one. So in this case, you know, the, the credit card company was on top of it. And any fraudulent charges I've ever had, the, the banks, credit card companies have done a good job of taking care of those. In these other situations, is there protection just sort of built in? That's a very specific question. Yeah, I'm not prepared to answer that one off yeah. the top of my head. Okay. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in a lot of those scenarios, if you find out about that sort of situation, one of the best ways to protect yourself is actually to call the police um, and make sure that you file a report that this has occurred. Because sometimes um, when you're dealing with the IRS or even a bank or one of these other entities, if you have that police report where you've referred uh, referred to it as a theft or an identity theft, that becomes a significant piece of evidence for those folks to work from, right? Because you wouldn't you wouldn't go to the police if you hadn't had your identity stolen and create that report generally, right? Most rational folks. Um, and I think that, you know, the other thing that it's really important to, to do is to consistently monitor your accounts. Um, and I think that you, things that don't look right will jump out. Brian, you were telling a story about noticing a charge uh not at an unusual spot for you, but in a very unusual location when you were in Idaho. Yeah, so um, I actually um, got an email uh, receipt from a Chipotle, um, but it was in South Carolina. Uh, and and you, it, you were not in South Carolina. I was not in South Carolina, although I could have definitely, wherever I was, gone for a Chipotle. <laughs> um, but it, it, it came in, and I immediately thought, hey, I'm not in South Carolina. And so then... I logged into my bank account and saw that the charge had actually come out of my bank account. Um, I immediately called the Chipotle to see if I could get the, you know, because it was funny because it was a it was a online purchase that they were then going to show up for pickup, and so I was trying to call the. I looked at it in time to see if I could call the Chipotle to stop the pickup and have it end right there, um, but I missed it by like two minutes or something. Um, and uh, but then I also called the police uh, and the police took down all the information. And one of the crazy thing, you know, life is crazy. Sometimes uh, the police officer that I talked to had been in that Chipotle 
uh, right around the time when all of this transpired. Hmm. Um, and even funnier, at, at some point in the conversation, the officer said, you know, there was this one person that kind of stood out, and I wonder. Um, and, and I never heard anything else about it. You know, the bank, the bank took care of it. Um, but it was, it, it was a really good reminder to change passwords. You know, sometimes, sometimes we're, we as humans, we, we create passwords and we get frustrated with having to change them all the time. And so we'll create a awesome password that we then use across multiple accounts. And sometimes when you have a breach like this, if they can get that sort of information, they kind of have the keys to your financial kingdom at that point right. because they have the ability to access your Amazon account, your Gmail account, your bank account. Um, and so it's a really good reminder to not only change all your passwords and have them unique for each site, um, but also to use two-factor authentication. It's a little bit more cumbersome to get that text into your phone to say, yes, this is me, but that's how you protect yourself because somebody externally can't then log into your account because you'll get the notification and they're stuck at that point. And that's correct. We recommend doing that as well. Changing passwords, especially after a big breach like this, it's a good idea. If you think you may have been affected by this Capital One breach or the Equifax breach or any of the breaches that are announced on an unfortunate regular basis, go ahead and change your password to that account. And, and that's a really good uh, segue, Jane. Um, just this week, Capital One announced that 106 million of their customers and applicants for credit uh, as well as 140,000 social security numbers uh, have been released uh, in a breach uh, of, their, of their data system. Um, most of the at-risk accounts at this point uh, were opened after 2005. Um, and if you are affected, you know, check with Capital One. Uh, they're offering free uh, credit mo monitoring and identity protection. You may want to freeze your, your credit change all of your passwords and set up two-factor authentication. I mean, those are kind of the, the steps that you have to take. Um, and I think part of it is just this kind of general understanding that we no longer live in a society where our information isn't out there, right? Putting our head in the sand isn't an option any longer. Signing up for something, sort of just fixing it and forgetting about it is, is a thing of the past. This is something that takes regular maintenance to stay on top of and make sure you're protected. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's that's a really important point, Scott. And I think that, you know, when I look at the Equifax settlement, one of the more interesting provisions of that settlement is that Equifax agreed to strengthen its security pr practices, including minimizing its collection of sensitive data and use of consumer social security numbers. And I think that's a discussion that I'm surprised we haven't had more of already. Um, why are all of these companies and organizations and even government to that point collecting all of this information? And, and is anyone really sitting down and saying, do we need to have three phone numbers for every person? Do we need to have multiple addresses? Um, and what are we doing with this information? Once we collect it, can we protect it? Should we shred it? Uh, how long do we maintain it? Because we're creating our own security nightmare. That's a really interesting uh, point. I'm just, I'm internalizing that here. I when I log into one of my financial accounts uh, with one of the big you know <laughs> major U.S. financial companies um, that I apparently have had a relationship with a very long time, and it's it's not recognizing the device that I'm logging in on. Um, 
it says, okay, we're going to send you a text or an email. Which of these like four phone numbers do you want to send us? Which that means that's going back probably close to 20 years back to, you know, around 2000 or so. I just like to see you receive that text message on your rotary dial phone on the farm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and Jane, one thing before we wrap up here, um, going back to the Equifax that, that you said you want to talk about scams. Um, and this sort of drives home the point that, that here there's a breach, there's a settlement, there's a way for consumers to step forward and say, I was a victim and, and I'm going to claim my restitution. But even that process is now being scrutinized by scammers and they're preying on people who are eligible for this restitution. Can you explain what those scams are looking like? Yeah, that's correct. It can be a website that looks like the correct website, but it's just a slight difference in, in the spelling. Um, it can also be phone calls or emails saying, we'll help you get your Equifax restitution. We're going to help you get your $125 or, or your, the money that's owed to you under this settlement. And what it is, it's phishing for information from you. It's going to be asking for your social security number or your credit card number or asking for you to pay up front, saying, you know, you pay us this money and we will get you your restitution. Um, if you ever get anything like that, just delete it. Or if it's a phone, just hang up. Um, you are not required to pay anything to get your settlement under the Equifax settlement. All right. And also... Um, the best protection you can have is go directly to the FTC website, ftc.gov. Um, never click a link in an email to take you to a claim website. Type in ftc.gov. Go ahead, Jim. And one more thing I wanted to point out. If you think that your identity has been stolen, the FTC has an excellent website is identitytheft.gov gov and you can report your identity theft and also get a recovery plan it will give you a step-by-step -step plan of what you need to do to help you get your identity theft issue resolved parting words of advice from both of you very very quickly brian what's your takeaway here um my takeaway here is to actively monitor your financial accounts and be aware of, of your financial um, picture on a fairly regular basis. And then um, don't be afraid to change your passwords and keep them unique. It's one of the best ways to protect yourself a little bit more cumbersome, um, but the peace of mind that it gives you in knowing that, that you, don't, you haven't given out the keys to the kingdom is very helpful. Okay. Jane? And I agree with what Brian said. You just have to watch out for yourself. You have to protect your information. You have to monitor your information. Very good. That is the voice of Jane Hochberg, a deputy attorney general in the office of the attorney general's consumer protection division. And Brian Kane, also a guest uh, on the program again today. Thank you both very much. That will wrap up episode six of Council for the State and this discussion about consumer data breaches. A reminder that in past episodes, we've covered topics like CBD and hemp, also scams and robocalls, and what exactly the office's role is in state government. If you have not heard our other podcasts, you can check those out on the AG's website. Again, that is ag.idaho.gov or on places like iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope you'll tune in again.